Hosanna, a fellowship with Christians. And we're live at Hosanna. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. It's kind of weird. Everybody's like facing this direction. So if you want to feel free to turn your chairs and look at us and then you can turn back for the service. But good morning anyway. Hi out there at home in your pajamas. So we're going to worship God here this morning and uh, feel free to stand up. Can I get everybody to stand up? I invite you to stand up. If you would not like to, that is fine.
worship you, Lord.
invite you all to stand up again and sing this song. Holy water. Lord, we need you every day. No matter what is happening outside.
guys, that was amazing. Thank you for leading us in worship. Well, oops, I'm supposed to be over here, I think. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. That was amazing. Oh, yeah. Nope, what? Can't hear, oh, you can't hear me. <laughs> We're good, it's good. If you're a guest here with us this morning, we extend a warm welcome to you. And hello to our friends on the live stream. It's good to have you joining us again this morning. Getting ready, the ushers are getting ready to take up the offering. Just a reminder, our Change for Change bucket in the back is for you to drop your loose change in on your way into church or on your way out. And the monies for October, November, and December are going to go to bless families in our community and beyond with help for Christmas. I know I say Christmas, but it's really not that far away if you think about it. So let's, let me pray before we take up our offering. Oh God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that it is like holy water on our skin. And Lord, none of us would be here this morning without your grace and without your mercy. And Lord, I thank you for these good people that are sitting out here and all of our friends online. Lord, we thank you for them and their commitment to your work in and through us as a congregation. So Lord, I ask you to bless the gifts that are given this morning and bless the givers as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, you can pass the buckets a little different this morning in our movie set up here, but you guys got it down. A few announcements for you this morning. Future Tense is the name of the new adult class that Tony Blair will be leading this morning right after the service. The future oftentimes makes us tense, doesn't it? Well, this class is going to look at some questions and queries that you may have about what the Bible says and about how Christians in the past have approached the future. And our online friends can join us as well. We're going to be meeting over here to my left in the fellowship hall from 11.15 to 12.15. And next Friday night, Hosanna at the movies. We had a good crowd here on Friday night, this past Friday night, for the movie that we're going to be, Tony's going to be talking about today. Well, next week, same time, 6.30. And your movie teaser for next week is, what happens when a juvenile sea monster comes out of the water for an adventure on dry land. This action-packed animated movie, new this year, illustrates to both adults and kids the joys of helping others and coming fully alive. And that is going to be Joanne's message next week. And next Sunday, immediately following the service, we're gonna be having a congregational meeting it's going to be online as well, so our online friends can join us. You can come in for the service and stay right through through the meeting. And then we're going to have a fellowship meal following that over in the fellowship hall. We haven't done that in such a long time. And what you're going to have for the fellowship meal is the ham and cheese sandwiches that you're purchasing out there. Yes. We're going to have some other things for you to eat too, not just a ham and cheese sandwich, but we'll have some other things as well. But today is the deadline to sign up for the ham and cheese sandwiches. They're $6. You can't beat that. And it's a fundraiser for Hosanna's Youth Group.
So sign up today for your ham and cheese sandwiches. Come and plan to stay next Sunday for the congregational meal. Come Friday night and join us for the movie. And now welcome Tony Blair as he's going to come and give us the message this morning. I'm up here on purpose this morning. Thank you, thank you. I deserve something. Everything has a purpose. That's what the main character in today's movie uh, uh, says. So let me begin with a question. Do you believe that everything has a purpose? Everything. Now, I sometimes watch this comedy improv show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Any of you watch that? It gets a little off color at times, but they, 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 they I seriously, there are times when I have been literally on the floor rolling and laughing. Um, they do one game called Infomercial where the, the, uh, the actors get a box of useless items and they have to pretend they're on an infomercial when they're selling these things. They have to make up purposes for them right on the spot. That's, that's actually a clip from that particular game. I'm amazed by the quick wit uh, that these guys come up with. The premise is everything, everything has to have a purpose. Well, when I see something that looks fairly worthless and most of the items that they are selling uh, look worthless, I'm tempted to think that it too might have a purpose. If not now, someday. So you know what I do, I tend to hold on to it. So that when the day comes that that purpose is revealed, I know where it is. I can put it into immediate effective use. You want me to translate that for you? I am becoming my mother. I'm becoming something of a hoarder. Uh, moving this past year was good for me because it got rid of a whole bunch of stuff. My mom, we found one time, was keeping six-month-old or six-year-old grocery flyer ads. You know, the ones they send you with the newspaper, sale in Saturday? Why, Mom, I ask? But now that I'm older, I understand better. You never know when it might be good to find out what the cost of boneless ribs was last February. <laughs> It could be useful information someday. Or I may need this to wrap something in. Anyway, well, maybe not everything has a purpose. I don't yet know God's grand purpose in creating mosquitoes. Or cats. <laughs> Deb missed that one. <laughs> yeah, something about a cat. I don't know what God's purpose is in creating cats. But, um... <laughs> but how about us? Do you have a purpose? Is there anyone on earth that God has made without a purpose? And the answer, of course, what we know in our heads is no, but I suspect that most people struggle to identify their purpose, which is why I think that nearly all of us get blown off track sometimes because we forget what it is, at least temporarily, or maybe we never found out and we get a little lost. In fact, I'd go so far to suggest that most people don't really believe that everybody else has a purpose either. If we really, truly believed that, we wouldn't discard, dismiss, or dishonor people as easily as we do. Right? We've invented all sorts of other ways, to dis all sorts of interesting ways to dispense with each other and to use each other. We wouldn't do that if we thought that everyone, even the most insignificant person, even the most annoying or evil person we've ever met was made with purpose. Well, the main character in last week's movie, Field of Dreams, if you missed that one, that was fun. 
he was 36 years old and was growing increasingly desperate to find his purpose in life. The main character in this week's movie is much younger. He's only 12, but he's much like Ray Kinsella in some ways. In fact, I picked these two movies on purpose because this one allows me to build on some of the themes that I introduced last week, and that's why we're doing them back-to-back here a little bit. Today's movie is Hugo, which is also, by the way, the name of the boy who is its subject. Now, did you guess it? We gave some clues last week. Some of you figured this out. Some of you came Friday night and watched it. Uh, How many of you have seen this movie? Okay, quite a few of you. That's that's wonderful. It was produced in 2009. It was based upon the award-winning book, The Invention of Hugo Cabret. Uh, Martin Scorsese is the director. So um, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to try to explain it as we go. But we want to use this. And, of course, Scripture is our primary inspiration for uh, what God has given us to talk about this morning. Like Ray Kinsella in Field of Dreams, Hugh Cabret misses his father. The absence of fathers is a common theme throughout history, unfortunately, and throughout literature and throughout the movies. It may be one reason that I think that Jesus is described, described the first person of the Trinity as father. Or sometimes the more intimate word in his language, Abba. That translation is Daddy. It's not that God is male, and it's not the only word used in Scripture for God. And for me, it wasn't the the most meaningful description for a long time because I got it confused with my relationship with my earthly father, which wasn't always as good as I wanted it to be. uh, But I've wondered about this quite a bit. Why Why the use of of the name father? And I've come to suspect that God may actually be trying to redeem some of the heartache and brokenness associated with kids and their fathers. And maybe offering himself as a divine father figure who is there, he's not absent, and who does it right. We sang that this morning, didn't we? Oh, how he loves us. And he really does. Anyway, there is no mention in the book or the movie of Hugo's mother. But his father had been a strong, gentle, active presence. He's played in the movie briefly by Jude Law. Mr. Capre was a man of science. He was employed by a museum. He loved to figure out how things worked. And his son inherited that same curiosity and skill. As I guess, bet that there are some of you here today who like that as well. You take things apart just to see how they're put together. To see if you can perhaps make it work better than before. Anyone identify with that? Yeah. You became an engineer, Rick, right? Yeah. I don't. Well, things don't work. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I do the little freak out thing because I don't understand how they're put together. I admire that skill in people and that curiosity, that, that inquisitiveness to figure it out, to see something broken, to not just see a problem, but also an opportunity to figure it out. And I suspect God does that. I suspect God looks at us that way. He doesn't see us primarily as problems, but is continually offering to change us to fix us, be transformed. The Bible says that all over the place. There's just one place. Be transformed by the renewing, the the, the fixing, the transforming, the changing of your mind, better translated as perspective. God gives us new ways to see. Well, Hugo's dad had rescued an old broken-down robot-looking machine that had been abandoned by the museum. He found it in the attic. They were going to get rid of it. And he brought it home just so he and Hugo could figure out how to fix it. 
Now, this thing is not a robot, actually. It's not computerized. It's not even electrical. You don't plug it in. It's purely mechanical. It's called an automaton. And uh, th these things were, re these, these were real. They were popular in the days. This movie was based in the 1930s. And they were popular in those days and before that, and the decades before that. And here's what one looked like when it was fully assembled. Well, I don't even know if that one was fully assembled, but at least it has the face on it. Some of them would be dressed up in clothes and things like that. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Um, anyway, it's like a, much like a wind-up music box with springs. That's what runs it. And it has an internal clockwork. Pay attention to that word. It has all these gears and switches. And this one, its purpose is to write. Now, what's, what, what does it write? No one knows. They're hoping if they can get it fixed, they can turn it on, that they will find out what it has to say. So Dad Cabret keeps writing notes and pictures in his small journal, hoping someday to get the automaton in working order. They're discovered, however, to dis that uh, they're discouraged, however, to discover that the machine requires a heart-shaped key. Isn't that symbolic? A heart-shaped key in order to turn on. Maybe we all need one of those. And they don't have one, of course. Maybe God does. Their work is interrupted when Hugo's father dies suddenly, horribly, in a fire at a museum. Hugo is informed of this tragic news bluntly and crudely by his uncle, his father's brother, Claude, who assumes responsibility for the boy. Now, Claude is a bumbling alcoholic. His job is to wind the clocks at the railway station in Paris. And he lives there in a hidden apartment in the station itself among the big, huge moving gears of these huge mechanical clocks. For trains must run on time. And people must know the time. And keeping the time right is an essential function, particularly in an era when even accurate timepieces were a privilege of the wealthy. As I said, it's the 1930s. It's in the middle of the Great Depression. The train station is the pass-through place for those still wealthy enough to afford train tickets, for those who still have reasons to go somewhere and can afford to get there. And so keeping those clocks running is an important function, and Uncle Claude does that. But then he disappears, too. Hugo assumes that he got drunk, he's on a bender somewhere, and he got lost. And the boy doesn't want to lose this second home that he's had. And so he determines to stay there and wind and maintain the clocks in secret. He lives in the station in secret, feeling that if Claude's absence is discovered, he'll be sent to an orphanage. And an orphanage is a place no 12-year-old boy wants to go, particularly in the middle of the Great Depression. By the way, uh, part of my family's story is my grandfather was sent to an orphanage about the same age. He was 12 years old when his father died and was sent to an orphanage in the middle of the Great Depression. And part of the, the, the dysfunction in our family has come about because of that experience and the things that it did to him and the ways that he acted out. So I, I, I watch this movie and I go, yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. So here we have a 12-year-old boy living by himself in the train station in secret, trying desperately to keep these clocks in working order so nobody will discover that Uncle Claude is missing. And his second father figure is gone. Well, who would send him to an orphanage? Well, the character in the movie is the obsessive, obsessive station inspector Gustav, who is played with comedic brilliance by Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, he's embarrassed 
by the brace on his wounded leg, wounded during the war. And he compensates for his embarrassment with an imperious self-importance. He runs the station as if he's a general in a battlefield with the help of his Doberman, Maximilian, which was the name, by the way, of an emperor. <laughs> that is, he does this when he's not shyly wooing the young, pretty Mademoiselle Lazette, who smells pretty smelly flowers. He actually asked her at one point, are they smelly? What do you mean? Are they smelly? Oh, you mean that they smell good? Yes, and so he smells them. A train station then is now has shops, and his patrons are those with money to spend. And so keeping the shops open and keeping the station safe matters. And Lizette is not the only shopkeeper being wooed, however, in the movie. Um, Madame Emile is receiving the awkward, bumbling efforts of the portly Monsieur Freak, who decides that the best way to a woman's heart is through her dog. <laughs> little, uh, you, you, if you haven't seen the movie, you'd enjoy the little comedy part of it. It's all rather funny. Or maybe it's not. Because underneath the bumbling attempts at romance, the movie portrays the sadness of the human condition. The clocks, which are everywhere in the movie, remind us of the passing of time and the passing of our lives. And speaking of passing, a train station is a place we pass through, along with other people. Strangers who might sit down next to us for a coffee or share a seat on a long train ride. Maybe a stranger to woo in hopes of becoming more than strangers, but they are strangers nonetheless. A train station is not quite like family, and certainly not like church. Other than Hugo, it's not a place for people to live, to call home. The train is what you take to get home. And the station is merely a means of getting there, a place to pass through. It's full of people most of the time, but the movie presents it as a very lonely place nonetheless. Have you ever spent long hours in train stations, bus stations, or airports? I have. For years, I took the train to work. I know what this feels like. I would sit there and just watch the people pass by. Didn't we do this stuff, make up stories for them? I'd watch people go by and try to imagine, write a story based upon what they look like and how they're acting, that, or the people, a couple people together. Oh, well, okay, that's a mother and a son, and they're not really happy with each other right now. They had an argument on the way here, and, you know, and I, I would do these kind of things. Now, the only true connections being made in places like that are humans with the trains or the buses or the airplanes. They're not really too often humans with humans. It's hardly a place to find your purpose in life. We see that in particular in another shopkeeper in the station who's wooing no one. In fact, his stern demeanor seems intent on scaring off prospective customers. He's played by Ben Kingsley. His name is Georges, the French pronunciation, and he sells toys. But he's old with a sad, stern look in his eyes that suggests that he's seen better days. A look that intimidates. George fixes the toys in his shop. This movie is full of people who like to fix things. And Hugo occasionally shoplifts a small tool from George's shop. Just as he shoplifts food from the fruit wagons and the baked goods displays. Because the clocks need winding, but they don't feed him. And he's 12 years old with no income. Nobody to take care of him. It's a tough existence for an orphan boy. 
fraught with peril, relying on his wits to avoid getting caught, to stay out of sight, and to keep himself alive in a place where nobody knows that he exists, in a world in which nobody seems to know that he exists. He probably feels more vulnerable than most of us have ever felt in our own lifetimes. I mean, usually there's someone somewhere, isn't there, helping us out? Someone to come home to? Somewhere to call home? That doesn't mean, of course, that we've always felt at home in the world, even with the someones who occupy our lives. What is their purpose, and how does it relate to yours? This is the state of affairs for Hugo until something happens that changes things for him and others. Something that reveals his purpose in the train station and part of his purpose in the world. One day, Georges rudely takes Hugo's father's notebook away from him and he won't give it back. He says it's because Hugo steals from him and so he's going to take something of Hugo's. But but we know better. The viewer, we've seen something. We know that George has seen something in that notebook that disturbs him greatly. And his response is over the top and he's holding on to this thing. Scares him somehow. And Hugo is scared too. He's frantic. The notebook and the automaton are all he has left of his father. And his father's notes on the automaton are in the notebook. And the automaton by now has taken on a deeply symbolic meaning for Hugo. Somehow he's convinced that if he can get the automaton to work, it will write a message from his father. He can't lose the notebook. So that starts up a whole series of events here. He decides to enlist the aid of Isabel, a book-loving girl about the same age, whom he thinks is George's granddaughter. She calls him Papa George. She visits him at the station. It turns out that she's actually his goddaughter, that she too is an orphan, like Hugo. And we see that this movie is full of people who are orphans. And the world is too. Maybe not biologically, but people who have been cut off from their roots and don't have a place to call home. She had been taken in by Georges and his wife, whom Isabel calls Mama Jeanne. Isabel, all she wants is a friend. She wants somebody to go on adventures with, like, the, like those that she reads about in Robin Hood or one of the other books that she reads so, so avidly. And she's never seen a movie because Papa George doesn't allow them her to go to movies. And so they decide to sneak into a movie theater together. And Hugo knows how to get in the back door because Hugo knows how to fix things and open things and make things happen. And so they go in and they, to this movie and Hugo tells her about one of his father's favorite movies because they watched a lot of movies together. About an old movie about a rocket that flew into the eye of the man on the moon. Hugo wants her friendship too. But he also sees her as the best way to get his father's notebook back. She lives with Papa George. She can find the notebook. And once again, we see this dilemma of human relationships. We all want connection with others. We all want relationship. We all want companionship. But we also want other things. And therefore, we're tempted to use people to try to get those other things. We use people for our own purposes. I know this is hard to hear, I know, but hang with me. We've all experienced this. We've all done this. Think about some of the ways that we impose our own purpose, or at least our own desires, on other people. 
and how we pretend we have to almost, even for a moment, that they don't have a purpose of their own, that they exist in order to serve my own. For instance, we use people to feel powerful. I think there's a reason Jesus modeled a life of purposeful powerlessness for us. Otherwise, what? We just dominate people to accomplish our own agenda. We've seen that throughout all of history. We use people for sex. There's a reason God put boundaries around sex, because he knew that otherwise we'd take advantage of each other. We use people to feel good about ourselves emotionally. There's a reason that God's own acceptance of us is rooted in grace. Because otherwise, you know what we do? We put people down in order to feel better about ourselves. Have you ever done that? You ever had that done to you? Know what that feels like. We see these patterns throughout all history and in nearly all lives. Everyone has a purpose, right? But it's so tempting because of sin to think that the purpose of other people is merely to serve my own. And this is the sad reality of human life, but thankfully it is a reality that Christ came to redeem us from, to fix how we do relationships so that we can help each other find and live out our true purpose. I keep asking, do you have a purpose? What is it? There is one that applies to all of us in addition to the particular specific purpose that we were created for. And I love how the 400-year-old Westminster Catechism puts it. The language is kind of old-fashioned. The chief end, the chief purpose of man, of humans, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that awesome? Does that surprise you at all? To enjoy God is part of your purpose in life? A lot of people don't think of God as somebody to be enjoyed, much less to be a purpose. I, I love that description. Well, the chief purpose of the automaton is to be enjoyed as well. That's what it's made for, for enjoyment, if they can get it to work. Hugo at last finds the key to discovering it, to, to, um, uh, to fixing it. He finds a literal heart-shaped key. Remember the one that's been missing? The one that had, they had this automaton has a key, a heart-shaped hole in the back of it? He finds a heart-shaped key that fits perfectly into the keyhole in the automaton. And where is it? Where does he find it? Hanging around Isabel's neck of all places. Why would my key fit into your father's machine, she wonders in amazement. And so do we. Hugo is less interested in the why. He's more interested in can we make this thing work. So he winds the machine and he turns the key and it sits there for a moment. He's just waiting, Hugo says. For what? To do what he's supposed to do. And then the automaton does just that. It begins to write. He's fixed it. The machine has been resurrected from its death. And now the question is, what message? What message will bring Hugo from his father? He's convinced that it will. Well, they watch, and at first they're a little confused because it, it writes what seems like random, meaningless dots and squiggles. But then after a while, they figure out that the message is not in words. It's a drawing and of all things, it's a drawing of a rocket landing in the eye of the man of the moon. The old movie that Hugo's father had told him about. Got dots that are 
connecting but don't make sense yet. Maybe like the dots that did not make sense is that the automaton started to write. And then it gets even stranger. At the bottom of the drawing, the automaton writes a signature. And the signature is Georges Méliès. And Isabel is confounded. That's Papa Georges. That's his last name. What is his signature doing on the drawing made by the, the automaton that my father found that I started with the key that you have around your neck? What's going on here? Well, maybe the answer is in the notebook. Papa Georges still has it. Hugo is still determined to get it back. They go to Isabel's apartment. They hide there from Papa George. And because they're young and curious, they go snooping around in a wardrobe. They're looking for the journal. And that's when they discover and spill open a secret trove of drawings, movie characters, and scenes. Even one that's identical to the one that they're carrying, the one that the automaton drew. Hmm. Hugo and Isabel are discovered, and Papa George is beside himself of grief. They don't know why. Nothing is making sense. Back from the dead, he mumbles. And he looks at Hugo and says, you are so cruel. What's going on? This is a mystery that needs to be solved. They leave him in his misery, and they go to the Film Academy Library to try to figure out the secret of these drawings, these movie sketches. And they find a history of movies called The Invention of Dreams. <laughs> Last week, we talked about a field of dreams, and now this week, it's a film of dreams. But dreams are dreams either way. And dreams are part of what God uses to help point us toward our purpose. They're one way that God uses to help us find our way back to him and to ourselves. This book they're reading, and this author shows up as they're reading it. I have never had that happen to me in my life, by the way. <laughs> I read a lot of books. They're in the academy, and the author, Mr. Monsieur Tabard, shows up, tells them how Papa George, Georges Millais, fits into the history of music, movie making. It seems that George once had a powerful purpose for his life. And was highly motivated by it. It came about when he was a young magician. And he saw one of the earliest movies ever made by the Lumiere brothers in Paris. They were the original pioneers of the movie industry. And he decided he wanted to learn how to do that himself. And because he was a guy that knew how to fix things, he did. He learned the science of making movies and the technique of directing. He built much of his own equipment. And he made fantastical movies. The historian says Georges Méliès was the first to realize that films had the power to capture dreams. Ah, there it is again. In those days, films were short, crude things, without sound, without subtitles. If they had color, it was painted on the film after production. The acting was overwrought. <laughs> but in order to try to convey emotion when you can't talk and there's no subtitles and there's no words... And the special effects were hardly special. One of the earliest films, this is true, was a couple of minutes of workers walking out of a factory at the end of the workday. And audiences were mesmerized. We'd be like, what? <laughs> but they would pay money to see people in motion. They'd be astonished. And when the Lumiere brothers did a quick movie showing a train pulling into a station, the report was that audience members instinctively gasped and ducked, 
convinced that the train was going to chug right off the screen and run over them. It was all so new. It was so imaginative. And interestingly, Georges Méliès is a real historical character, just like Shoeless Joe Jackson was in Field of Dreams last week. And interestingly, they were actually at the top of their games at about the same time in the early 20th century. And like Shoeless Joe, George's story has a bit of tragedy in it. He had been the first famous movie director. People knew his name. They wanted to work with him. They wanted to see his movies. 500 of them in total he made. His most famous was one I had encountered decades ago before seeing this, A Journey to the Moon, 1902. It was French. Some of you can probably pronounce that better than I could. It was partly a comedy, but it was the world's first science fiction film. And it was the first to, to really try special effects. It was about a rocket that flew into the eye of the man on the moon. It's that movie. Audiences were mesmerized. Before World War I, George Melies was a very big deal. But after the war, the culture shifted. His films were by then considered old-fashioned, silly. People stopped coming. He sadly fired his staff, burned his sets, and his films were sold to be melted down for chemicals to make shoe heels. And that's symbolic. He disappeared so thoroughly that it was thought he had died. But Georges Méliès, the great filmmaker, had actually been reduced to selling silly toys at a Paris train station. And that's why in the movie, he angrily refuses to even mention his previous life. He wants no reminders of what he once was, what he once did. So what do we have here? We have a young boy, Hugo, who hasn't yet found his purpose in life. We find an old man, George, who has lost his. But Hugo is now determined to fix George like he fixed the automaton. I made him come back to life, didn't I? He wants to resurrect George to restore his purpose in life so he works again. And of course, we know that humans can't fix other people, right? We don't know that when we're 12, but hopefully we learn it somewhere along the way. As a pastor, I was a little slow to come to that realization. I kept trying to fix people, but uh, there, there is good news in here. We know someone who can. And that's why we care for each other. And that's why we walk with each other in moments of hopelessness and brokenness. We point to the one whose love heals and transforms. We tell our own story about how that one met us and resurrected our hopes and resurrected our lives. So Hugo and Isabel take Monsieur Tabard, the historian, to the apartment. Where together they watch one of Papa George's old movies. The only one that is known to be in existence. It's about a rocket that flies to the, into the eye of the man in the moon. And they watch it with Mama Jean, in which she was a young, and she, in this movie, she was a young and beautiful actress. And while the movie is playing, Papa George in his room hears the sound of a movie projector, and he comes out of his room, and he finally admits to his identity. And he's invited by those four people standing around him to remember his past, to embrace his identity, and to reclaim his purpose in life. And then they discover what we've already figured out by now, haven't we? 
that among his many experiments, inventions, and innovations, creating an automaton was something else that George had done. That one that Hugo has back in the apartment at the train station, it is his. George had made it when he was young. It was very special to him. It was the only thing he hadn't destroyed. When everything else got thrown in the bonfire, he had held on to that. He gave it to the museum personally, hoping that it would be put on display as a treasured relic. But like nearly everything else he had created, it had been tossed aside. He had assumed his automaton was gone forever, like everything else in his life until he saw drawings of it in Hugo's little notebook. That's why he wanted that so badly. That's why it disturbed him so greatly. How could you have drawings of my automaton? It's been gone for decades. And suddenly everything starts making sense. Hugo decides that he now has the perfect fix for George's life. He rushes back to the train station to retrieve it, to bring it back to its original owner not realizing that in the interim, while he's been gone, his secret has been found out. Uncle Claude's body had washed up on the banks of the River Seine. And the inspector discovers that the man he thinks, his employee, the man he thinks has been maintaining the clocks, has actually been dead for six months. Well, then who's been winding the clocks? The scene is a little bit drawn out, but he captures Hugo. He locks him up. Threatens the orphanage to him again. The orphanage where, as it turns out, Gustav himself had been raised. He was an orphan too. You'll find out you don't need a family. That's what he shouts to Hugo. And that's when we discover that his leg is not the only wounded part of Inspector Gustav. Like the rest of these broken, disconnected characters, what he really wants, what he's denying himself that he wants, is a place to belong, people to call home, and a purpose for his life. The scene that follows is very dramatic. Hugo escapes from the inspector and his dog, eventually climbs up and up up the stairs, climbing out into the huge clock face on the outside of the building. In the winter snow, hanging from the minute hand, high above the Parisian streets. Interestingly, there had been a scene almost just like that where the actor had done in the movie that he and Isabella had snuck into the theater to watch. And life imitates art. And art gives inspiration to life. In the end, Hugo is not discovered. He rescues his autonomy. He almost gets run over by a train. He gets caught again by Gustave. And that's when Papa George shows up. He arrives at the train station and there's a new look on his face. So much of him had died years ago. His sense of purpose in life, his creativity and his innovation, the joy that he had shared with the rest of the world. But now he stands before them as a living resurrection, proudly reclaiming his purpose and claiming this brave, desperate young boy as his own. The film ends with a celebration in George's honor by the Film Academy, which has a full house of people clapping and applauding this man that they have admired and respected for so long when he thought he had been forgotten. They've recovered 80 of his films. This is true. Parts of which they show the assembled audience. 
And then they invite him on the stage, and Papa George is beaming, proud to be so honored, thrilled to be so well-remembered, satisfied and fulfilling his purpose again. He's now faculty at the Film Academy. And that purpose, in the end, after all, wasn't just to make movies. The movies was the way that he did it. But even as a magician, he was kind of fulfilling this, his, his original purpose, which was underneath of it. His purpose, as it turned out, was to stimulate the imagination, to create stories and machines and images that will help people see more than what was in front of them, to believe more than what they see in the reality around them. Come and dream with me, is what he invites the audiences at this gala in his honor. Maybe we could say that in the end, he was a professional eye-opener. Kind of like God, right? Isn't that what Jesus was doing all the time he was with us on earth? He was saying things like this. Look, if you think that guy is blind because God got ticked at him, I want to open your eyes. God is better than that. And I'll prove it by healing him in the name of that God that you think has punished him. See that person, that leper that no one will touch? I'll touch him. Change your perspective. Be transformed by the changing of your perspective, right? Isn't that what Jesus is doing? You know what you think of those dirty Samaritans. But let me tell you a story where one of them is the hero. Open your eyes. You think the big question of faith is where to worship God. I tell you that the big question of faith is whether you recognize God when he shows up for a drink at the well. Right in front of you. The one you look for is me. You think all that God wants is obedience to the rules. Let me tell you about a God who is especially kind to those who have broken the rules. I could go on and on. You've heard us do this week after week here again and again. Jesus blows people's minds. He opens their imaginations to see God more fully, to see God's presence all around them, and to enjoy him. To see possibilities they didn't know existed. And to see and enjoy their own purpose for being here in this life, in this world, at this time. And this, by the way, is a purpose he has passed along to you and me. Not only to find our own, not only to have our eyes opened up, but to nudge the world, to nudge everybody else, to wake up and see what's really real. Wake up. And sitting there in that audience that day is Hugo with his family and a purpose of his own. What's his purpose? He knows how to fix things. <laughs> Little toys in Papa George's shop, an automaton that draws beautiful people, and how to nudge people toward being fixed themselves. He helps restore an old man to his calling in life and, and allows that old man to help restore Hugo, too. He belongs somewhere now. He has a home. The people in Hugo's life are not just passing through. Kind of like God, who is never just passing through our lives. And so we too have a place to belong. We have a family. We have a home that has been restored to us. Jesus said it himself. He says, I go and prepare, uh, prepare to. 
You know what he said. <laughs> I go to make sure the dinner is on the table for you when you get home. <laughs> Prepare. That's the word. Prepare a place for you. And if we're not sure where that place is, if we feel lost in the train stations of our lives, I've been lost in the train stations, in the airports, confused. I don't know which direction to go. I don't know which one to get on. If we've ever felt that way in our life, he assures us that he is himself the way. Follow him and all will be well. Follow him and be at home. Not just, by the way, in heaven someday, but here and now. There is a papa who has never gone away. And who invites us home. In fact, Jesus gets very explicit. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And for every single one of us who has lost our parents or has felt disconnected from the world, who feel like we're all alone out there, no matter who is passing around our lives alongside of us, you are invited home. You have a home. He has not left you as an orphan. He has indeed come to us. And that's why we assemble again today in a place as a people and as those who have a purpose. A purpose not just as individuals, but a purpose as a community. We have a purpose together. Jesus gives us a purpose. He gives us that same mission of resurrection and reconciliation that you go ahead to help other people find their way back to life, back to themselves, by finding the way back to God. We get to do that. We get to be the Hugos of the world. He has committed to us a message of reconciliation, is the way the scripture puts it. Paul writes to the Corinthians, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, and so God, we're making his appeal through us. And so we make the appeal on God's behalf. We get to be the ones who tell the world about a God that we can enjoy. How many people in the world believe that is true about God? We get to tell the world about a God who makes dreams come true. And sometimes in ways that look like magic. And that magic, those miracles that God does in the world, remind us every single time, as I said last week, that some things are possible that should not be possible including resurrection. Because that's what God's up to. Things are broken. And he is at work fixing the entire world. Because that's what he does. So I finish today with a question I asked near the beginning of this message. Do you have a purpose? Hugo tells Isabel why he believes he has one. I love this, this, this part of the movie. He says, machines never come with extra parts. If the world is one big machine, I couldn't be an extra part. I had to be here for a reason. And you have to be here for a reason, too. Isn't that awesome? The purpose of clocks is to tell time. The purpose of trains, he says, is to take people places. So what's your purpose? Only you and God can answer that, but let me assure you, you have been made for a reason, loved for a reason, redeemed for a reason, gifted, empowered for a reason. What is it? And by the way, it's probably not your job. 
Yes, we all have tasks to do to keep the clocks and the trains of the world running. But they're not our deepest, truest purpose. Our purpose lies underneath and beneath what we do to make a living. It's what we make out of our living. What is yours? Let us pray together. God of purpose. Our Father who art in heaven and here on earth with us. Thank you for the purpose in your heart to love us so dearly, so tenderly, so persistently that you invite us to be restored and resurrected. And thank you for not just treating us as machines that exist to serve somebody else's pleasure. You've given us a purpose for ourselves, something that makes us come alive, something that gives us joy, and something that honors you. And we pray this morning for every single one of us here to sharpen our focus, to help us see it for the first time if we've, if we've never found it, to recover it if we've lost it somewhere along the way and life has taken it from us. Resurrect us today as necessary in order that we may live fully, love fully, and serve fully in this world that you have made on purpose. Amen. One more thing. The world needs people with purpose right now. We know what the world looks like out there. There's an awful lot going on that just seems to be somewhat random or there's purposes that are not God's purposes. The world needs people with purpose right now. People who are not just passing through. People who are not wooing the wrong things. People who know how to fix things. The world needs right now people who have experienced resurrection. So it's true. The world needs you. The world needs you living your life on purpose. Please go and do that this week. Bless you.